Welcome to Menopause Reimagined. I'm your host, Andrea Donsky, a nutritionist for more than 18 years, and I'm in menopause. Menopause educator, menopause researcher, and I'm the co-founder of WeAreMorphous.com, a company that helps to empower you to take control of your health and symptoms with nutrition, lifestyle, supplements, and research. Today, I have a very special guest for you. I'm very excited about today's interview. I'm speaking with Dr. Joanne Manson. She's a professor of medicine and the Michael and Lee Bell Professor of Women's Health at Harvard Medical School. She's a professor in the Department of Epidemiology, Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and chief of the Division of Preventive Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Manson is a physician epidemiologist, endocrinologist, and principal investigator, or PI, and co-PI of several research studies, including the Women's Health Initiative Clinical Center in Boston and the cardiovascular component of the Nurses' Health Study. Her primary research interests include randomized clinical prevention trials of nutritional and lifestyle factors related to heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, the role of estrogens as determinants of chronic disease, life course-related risk factors for cardiovascular disease, or CVD, in women, and biomarker predictors of cardiovascular disease. Dr. Manton received, has received numerous honors and has published more than 1,200 peer-reviewed articles in the medical literature. She's the author and editor of several books and textbooks, and she serves as editor-in-chief of Contemporary Clinical Trials and is one of the most highly cited researchers in the world. She's also the past president of the North American Menopause Society. One thing that really stood out for me when I was preparing for this interview is how Dr. Manson has, broke, has broken so many barriers for women in the field of medicine. For example, she was the first woman to be the chief of preventive medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School. She was one of the first female professors at Harvard Medical Schools, just in general, and one of the physicians feature, featured in the National Library of Medicine's exhibition, History of American Women Physicians. So I'm excited to ask her what that felt like. Now, here's Dr. Manson. Welcome to Menopause Reimagined, Dr. Manson. Hi, Andrea. It's great to be here. I have so many questions for you. So we're going to start, we're going to jump right in and we're going to start with the Women's Health Initiative. And I know that you were one of the lead researchers on the study. And for those, for our audience and for those who are listening, who perhaps never heard of the study or not, don't really know what it is, can you give us a little bit of background on why you, you, were, you did the study and what it was? The Women's Health Initiative is the largest nationwide study of postmenopausal women. So in the overall study, more than 160,000 women across the entire country, ages 50 to 79, and focused on some of the most pressing questions in women's health, especially postmenopausal women's health. So what are the benefits and risks of menopausal estrogen therapy, menopausal hormone therapy, what are the effects of calcium and vitamin D, and will a low-fat diet lower risk of breast and colorectal cancer? Those were three randomized clinical trials. Also, more than half of the participants were entered into an observational cohort to look at many other risk factors and means of prevention of major chronic diseases in postmenopausal women. And we know that, you know, so many people now refer that that was the largest to date as far ever, right, for women in menopause. Of postmenopausal women, yes, the, the largest uh, study. And then what were some of the observations that came out of that study? 
So there were complex observations uh, from, from the randomized trials. You know, overall, it's really clear to understand what the goals of the different trials were. For the hormone therapy trial, the goals of these two trials, one was estrogen plus progestin in women with an intact uterus, because you need to take an, add a progestogen if you, have an, you haven't had a hysterectomy. And the second hormone therapy trial was in women with hysterectomy who could take estrogen alone. The goal was to understand the balance of benefits and risks of menopausal hormone therapy when used for the express purpose of preventing chronic diseases, such as heart attacks, strokes, uh, cognitive decline, and outcomes like that. The purpose was not to look at the efficacy of hormone therapy for treating hot flashes, night sweats, and managing menopausal symptoms because it had already been established that hormone therapy is very effective in decreasing hot flashes, night sweats, improving quality of life that are relate related to bothersome hot flashes and other menopausal symptoms, disrupted sleep, problems like that related to the symptoms. So it was really trying to understand the effects on chronic diseases. And why would that be an important question? Because it was an increasingly common practice for clinicians to prescribe menopausal hormone therapy to women in their 60s, 70s, even 80s and older for the express purpose of trying to prevent heart attacks, strokes, cognitive decline, and reduce mortality. Um, so that was the purpose of the trial. This is not really understood by many who think it was looking at effects of hormone therapy on quality of life or overall, you know, effects of hormone therapy. It was not focused on you know, treating the hot flashes, night sweats. Then calcium, vitamin D, that was focused primarily on whether uh, supplementation could reduce fractures. So many women take calcium and vitamin D supplements. Most previous randomized trials had been in women with osteoporosis or low bone mineral density. This particular trial in WHI was focused on women at usual risk of fracture, uh, a broad range of bone mineral densities, um, would calcium and vitamin D prevent hip fractures and other fractures? And the third um, main trial, which is called the low-fat dietary modification trial, also increased fruits, vegetables, and grains. That trial was trying to get an answer to this very perplexing issue of whether a low-fat diet could lower breast cancer and colorectal cancer. There had been a lot of controversy uh, from observational studies about that point, and this then was a randomized clinical trial. These were the different randomized trials, hormone therapy, calcium, vitamin D, low-fat diet, addressing some of these very pressing questions in women's health. What's interesting is that the part with the estrogen and the hormone therapy part was the kind of, it kind of took over. And that's when you think about the WHI, you only think about that part. Why do you think that is? I think that because the results were 
so shocking. Um, there had been an expectation based on a number of observational studies that hormone therapy would be found to reduce risk of heart attack and uh, all-cause mortality have quite a favorable effect even on cognitive function. And when the results were published, it looked like, especially for estrogen plus progestin, the risks were outweighing the benefits for prevention of chronic diseases. So for example, on the risk side, and many of these results were largely driven by women who were in their later 60s and 70s because they were having the most clinical events. <laughs> um, obviously, age is a very important factor in terms of heart attacks, strokes, uh, cognitive decline, um, e even different forms of cancer. So the results were not favorable. There was an increased, uh, significantly increased risk of stroke, pulmonary embolism or blood clots in the lungs, blood clots in the legs, borderline increase in heart attacks, and an increase in breast cancer. These were all on the risk side. On the benefit side, there was a reduction in hip fracture, significant, like 30% um, or greater reduction in hip fracture, and also colorectal cancer seemed to be reduced. This is with estrogen plus progestin. Those results were announced first, published first, because that trial was stopped early, three years early. The estrogen alone trial was stopped one year early. So it actually went on two years longer than estrogen plus progestin. But when the results of the estrogen plus progestin trial were announced, there it was almost like a bombshell finding it led to a sea change in clinical practice. And the use of hormone therapy, prescriptions for hormone therapy, women's uh, use of hormone therapy declined by more than 70% after that trial. And in some ways, uh, inappropriate use was being eliminated, but also some appropriate use was um, you know, being stopped. And that, and that was unfortunate because the results were very widely extrapolated to women, even in their 40s, mid 40s, late 40s, early 50s, just going through menopause, women with bothersome, distressing hot flashes and night sweats thought that they should not take hormone therapy and that the risks outweighed the benefits. Um, so that part was unfortunate. Because for women in early menopause, there are some risks. Most medications will have some risks, but the overall benefit-risk ratio appeared much more favorable than for women who were in their 60s and 70s at the time they were being randomized to a hormone therapy. And I, I think some of the, you know, when we look at some of the flaws and some, I listen to experts. Again, I'm, I'm not the hormone expert. I just love to learn about it. And I always defer to experts like yourself and other doctors. And some of the flaws that they were saying was that, that women were older, the average age, was it 61 or 62, 63. 63. So the average age was a little bit older. Um, what, you know, so tell us a little bit about the flaws, because I do want to understand that. And then I have a whole other bunch of questions to ask you. <laughs> 
So I, I want to mention that when the estrogen alone findings came out, in this was in 2004, two years later, that was the trial women with hysterectomy. The results were actually much more neutral and balanced. There was a significant close to 40% increase in a uh, stroke. However, most of the other outcomes were neutral. Uh, fairly equally balanced between the estrogen alone arm and the placebo arm. And there was, again, about a one-third reduction in hip fracture. So it was sort of a balanced finding um, in terms of benefit-risk ratio, but that received very little attention uh, because there was had been so much alarm about estrogen plus progestin. I also want to mention that estrogen plus progestin was linked to a, an increase in breast cancer. It was relatively small, and, and you're really no more than one, um, one woman with breast cancer per 1,000 users of hormone therapy per year. However, um, the estrogen alone arm showed a decreased risk of breast cancer. With longer follow-up, the conjugated estrogen alone was linked to actually a reduced risk of breast cancer as well as breast cancer mortality. That received very, very little attention. I want to emphasize there were specific formulations tested in the WHI trial, but these were the most common formulations of hormone therapy being used in the 1980s, early 1990s. It was in the early 1990s, the trial was planned. And these were also the formulations that had been linked to favorable results for cardiovascular disease in the observational studies. So that's why these formulations were chosen to be tested. Do you feel that because that was, you know, over 20 years ago, do you feel now because the formulations have changed now, we have more bioidentical hormones, we have different formats, like so the oral estrogen is, you know, the one form, and that's what you were using, you, and you could talk about the type, so the oral estrogen and the progestins, now there, you know, there's oral micronized progesterone, so so much has changed in the last 20 years, do you see, do you feel that perhaps, you know, that this information is would it be so much different today if it was redone, the study? Yes, but I, I do again want to highlight that there is no large-scale randomized clinical trial of the transdermal or patch estradiol yeah. and the micronized progesterone. However, based on the available research, which is mostly observational studies, just looking at associations, and also some small randomized trials looking at the effect of transdermal estradiol versus oral estrogen on clotting factors, on lipids, on blood sugar levels, and a number of other biomarkers. I think it's quite likely that many of the risks that were identified with the oral estrogen could be avoided with transdermal or patch estrogen, especially the risks of blood clots in the legs and lungs and some of those thrombotic outcomes. I think it's 
not entirely clear whether the stroke, that excess risk of stroke could be totally avoided, but I think there's reason to believe it might be at least attenuated and less, less um, large an, an increase in the risk of stroke. So probably the benefit risk ratio would be more favorable with the transdermal estrogen, estradiol, and the micronized progesterone than with the uh, conjugated estrogens and the um, medroxyprogesterone acetate, or what we call Provera, uh, probably would be more favorable with the formulations being used today. Also, lower doses are being used today. However, keep in mind that sometimes randomized clinical trials have surprising results, and we don't have the large-scale randomized clinical trial of of the transdermal patch, estradiol, and micronized progesterone, but probably the results would be uh, a more favorable benefit risk profile. Did they look at ov- did you look at ovarian cancer as well, or was? Yes. So the the numbers are quite small in terms. We don't have a definitive answer, but there was a suggestion of like a borderline increase in ovarian cancer with um, the, the two forms of hormone therapy. So it's, it's not a definitive result, but it was kind of creeping up uh, toward an increased risk. Interesting. The type of progesterone that was used, is that the same type of like the progestins or progestogens? Are those the same types that are used in IUDs and birth control pills? Uh, there, there are some differences in the formulations. Um, and in fact, uh, birth control pills also have an increased risk of blood clots in the legs and lungs, and they're higher doses than menopausal hormone therapy, um, several fold higher doses. So even some of the blood clotting risk can be a little greater than with menopausal hormone therapy. But with oral hormones that go directly to the liver, and can affect the liver's synthesis of clotting factors and you know various um, proteins. It's not surprising that you know with oral contraceptives and with men- oral menopausal hormone therapy that there would be increased risk of clotting. Hmm. And do you, how much of the oral is used today? So is it? And I know that it is still used, but how much of it is used today? And, and do doctors, if they're, are they familiar with that? Like, I know that you were the president of the North American Menopause Society. So I'm just curious how much education is given to doctors so that they know when they're prescribing what type of uh, hormones to prescribe. The education is available to clinicians. You know, there, um, there certainly are a lot of continuing medical education courses. The North American Menopause Society, which is now called the Menopause Society, does provide a lot of information online and, um, you know, does, does provide a certification so that clinicians can get additional training, um, you know, opportunities for clinicians to get additional training if they w- would like to um, really focus at least some of their practice on menopause management. However, I will say that in the medical school curriculum, in uh, internship residency and fellowship training, there are major gaps in, tr- in um, 
education and training on the subject of menopause, menopause management, hormone therapy. Many clinicians come out of training with inadequate knowledge of you know, menopause management and um, being able to discuss risks and benefits of hormone therapy, pros and cons for the individual patient, engage in active shared decision-making with the patient, ask, be able to ask patients about symptoms and really understand what would be, you know, an appropriate clinical decision. I think that this is a real problem that um, the education and training, um, many, many gaps, and it's been given short shrift. I think it's a very important that this um, th this gap in, in education and training be addressed. Do you think it's changing at all in terms of in the medical world? Not enough, N not enough. Um, I mean, menopause management is such a huge part of clinical practice. I mean, we're, we're talking about a very large segment of the patient population. Um, and women are living 40% or more of their lives in the postmenopausal phase. Um, it's, it's really um, outrageous that there's so little attention to menopause management. And I'm not talking only about managing hot flashes and night sweats um, and the different options. There are some non-hormonal options as well that in itself is a you know a complex very important field how to manage the symptoms and um you know improve women and help women to have improved quality of life during the menopause transition during the um early postmenopause when when these symptoms are more common but i'm talking about management in terms of all of these other health conditions you know this is a phase of life when chronic diseases are increasing dramatically you know there's increasing risk of bone loss osteoporosis fractures increasing risk of heart disease type 2 diabetes stroke um so many other cancers besides breast cancer, your breast cancer is increasing, other cancers are increasing, all-cause mortality is increasing. There's so much that really can be done on the lifestyle front to encourage women, encourage women to, um, with health promotion types activities, behavioral approaches, increasing physical activity. If anything is a magic bullet for good health, um, it's regular physical activity. I mean, so many health conditions preventing, you know, heart disease, stroke, osteoporosis and osteoporotic fracture, type 2 diabetes, several forms of cancer, cognitive decline, emotional well-being benefits, improved sleep. I mean, I could go on and on. The list yeah. is expansive just from physical activity and, and most patients don't even get counseling about physical activity, but also healthy diet and, you know, just addressing whether if a patient is smoking or vaping, how can I help this patient to stop? What tools and resources can I provide? What can I do in terms of referrals, maybe to a nutritionist, uh, providing, you know, different 
approaches to behavioral changes that will improve health. I'm, I'm a very strong advocate for prevention. Um, I, I think that's another area that's given short shrift. We don't really have a health care system. It's more of a disease care system. Um, I, I know that that is widely recognized, but also there isn't enough attention to prevention. And, you know, it, it's often said, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, but that isn't really given much attention at all in terms of health and health conditions and chronic disease prevention. From the Nurses' Health Study, which I've also been actively involved with, we've been able to look at the role of these lifestyle and behavioral factors in reducing risk or being associated with lower risks of several chronic diseases, including heart, heart attacks, strokes, um, type two diabetes, and several forms of cancer. And we have seen just enormous associations such as lifestyle behavioral factors are linked to an 80% reduction in the risk mm -hmm. of heart attack and more than a 90% reduction in risk of type two diabetes. And for cancers, 40% or greater reduction. I mean, so many of these chronic diseases um, can be reduced or mitigated through behavioral factors, healthier lifestyle, regular physical activity, healthy diet, healthy nutrition. Um, this is not given enough attention. Mm, I love what you said. And it is so true. I mean, that's what we focus on at Morphous. That, I mean, that's our thing, right? Nutrition, right. lifestyle, supplementing, that is literally our thing. And I love hearing that, that that's an important thing. So as you're speaking, my thought is, okay, so what role does hormones play in that? Because, and, and HRT specifically, because I'm hearing from a lot of, and again, you know, I, I have no judgment either way. I always say you do what's best for you because everybody's unique and different. And whatever you decide to do, there's tools in our toolbox and I provide you with the tools on this end. And if you want to do hormones, that's your choice. You can also do it all together, which you should do all together hearing for, not you should, it's, you can do it all together if that's what you choose to do. So my question to you is, and, and I've heard doctors, I've heard some doctors who will say, and because I'm very active on social media, who will say things very scary to women of like, if you don't take hormones, this is going to happen to you, or you absolutely need to, it's the panacea. Like, so I just would love to know where hormones fall into that spectrum as to what you were just saying. So there's a swinging pendulum in terms of hormone therapy. Prior to the Women's Health Initiative results, the pendulum was in the direction of hormone therapy is good for all women. It should be almost routinely prescribed for prevention of heart attacks, strokes, cognitive decline. And even in women who don't have hot flashes, night sweats, who are in their late 60s, 70s, 80s, hormone therapy can prevent these chronic diseases. Then after the WHI results were reported in 2002, the estrogen plus progestin trial, 
the swinging of the pendulum was in the complete opposite direction of hormone therapy shouldn't be used. It, it has an adverse, unfavorable benefit risk ratio. That was also an oversimplification. Um, the findings are actually so much more nuanced. I think the pendulum is starting to rest in the more appropriate place, which is that hormone therapy is good for some, but not all women. It is particularly appropriate for women who have bothersome hot flashes and night sweats, who have impaired quality of life related to their menopausal symptoms. And especially in early menopause, hormone therapy will have a favorable, is likely to have a favorable benefit risk ratio in women who have the bothersome symptoms and don't have contraindications such as, you know, prior history of blood clots or risk factors, um, very, uh, or prior history of breast cancer or very, very high risk of cardiovascular disease. Hmm. So it's a conversation that we should, everyone should have with their doctor to see if they're the right if, if it works for them. So it's an individualized decision that really needs to be made, taking into account a woman's uh, symptoms, her, the severity of the symptoms, how bothersome the symptoms are for her, taking into account her age, her time since menopause, her personal preferences about hormones, hormonal uh, treatments versus really uh, preferring to go the route of non-hormonal uh, options, of which we have many now, even for uh, treating the hot flashes and night sweats, and also her underlying health status. Because as I was mentioning, women who are at very high risk of breast cancer or cardiovascular disease are not good candidates. Um, their benefit risk profile will be less favorable than women who are in good health, a general, just like usual risk of cardiovascular disease or low risk, um, relatively low risk of breast cancer. These would be women who are better candidates for hormone therapy. So it needs to be an individualized decision in which the woman herself, the patient herself plays such an important role because it really does depend on, you know, her symptoms, her preferences, um, after she is informed and, you know, gets the information about benefits and risks, what would be her preference to go the route of a hormonal versus a non-hormonal treatment, or maybe just try to focus on lifestyle and behavioral approaches. We hear a lot about taking hormones for prevention of dementia or brain health and bone health and heart health. What are your thoughts on that and, and the role it plays for women when it comes to the big three, which were many of us, and you mentioned earlier, are more prone to as we go into menopause? So the current thinking is that the best candidate for hormone therapy is a woman in early menopause who has bothersome, moderate to severe hot flashes, night sweats, especially if there's disrupted sleep and doesn't have contraindications such as high risk of cardiovascular disease or, or breast cancer. Whether hormone therapy should be used for the express purpose of trying to prevent heart disease, stroke, cognitive decline, 
even osteoporosis um, or uh, let's say osteoporotic fracture is much more controversial. It's really not recommended for preventing heart disease um, or stroke or cognitive decline. Some clinicians feel that it's still reasonable to use it to prevent osteoporosis in a woman who is at increased risk if she otherwise doesn't have contraindications to, to hormone therapy. I think that generally the view is that hormone therapy is best for the treatment of a moderate to severe bothersome hot flashes, night sweats, other menopausal symptoms, and really should not be used for the express purpose of preventing chronic diseases in women who don't have these symptoms. There are other remedies that can be used for reducing risk of um, fracture, you know, osteoporotic fracture and um, heart disease statins, uh, guideline directed care in terms of, you know, managing risk factors, blood pressure, having well-controlled blood pressure, uh, statins if cholesterol is elevated, making sure that the behavioral factors such as regular physical activity and healthy diet, you know, are given attention to. There are other approaches to preventing the heart disease, stroke, cognitive decline, and hormone therapy has not really been shown to be a benefit when women get to those ages where those health conditions are most common, such as women in their 60s, 70s, 80s. Can you define early menopause? Because you said it a couple of times. So I just want to be clear for our listeners to be, is that perimenopause? Is that within a certain time period, like within 10 years of going into menopause? So can you just be a little bit more clear with what that means, early menopause? So in, in terms of the WHI findings, um, the benefit risk ratio seems to be more favorable for women who are in their 50s. Remember, the youngest women are age 50, you know, 50 to 59. So among women 50 to 59 or within 10 years of onset of menopause. So it's actually a pretty long period. We're not talking about limiting to just the first two years after menopause begins. You know, it's, it's all the way up to within 10 years of uh, the onset of menopause. Um, most of the randomized trials of hormone therapy have been done in women who have already reached menopause, meaning they've had their final menstrual period and in fact have gone a year or so without a menstrual period. Um, whether hormone therapy is of benefit in women who are still cycling and intermittent, intermittently ovulating, which is the case during the early years of the perimenopause and the menopause transition has really not been well studied in a randomized trial. If you were to get, you know, funding and I was going to say, Dr. Manson, I'm, you know, you have carte blanche to go and redo the women's health initiative. What would that look like today? What changes would you implement? What factors would you take into account that weren't taken into account back in 2002? Well, I would love to look at the benefits and risks of hormone therapy using the newer formulations such as transdermal estradiol, bioidentical forms of um, hormone therapy, the estradiol given by patch or 
um, and the micronized progesterone. But I want to, I do want to emphasize that these bioidentical hormone therapy uh, uh, treatments can come in FDA approved, you know, types as well as compounded pharmacy types. And we recommend that the FDA approved forms be used of the, let's say, transdermal patch estradiol rather than the compounded because the FDA approved formulations of estradiol, micronized progesterone, they have been better tested for purity, for consistency of content in you know, the product, um, being free of contaminants and impurities and you know having the, the right uh, the amount of uh, dose that it says on the label. Um, so so that's an important distinction. Many, many um, women may think, oh, bioidentical, that means I automatically should go to a compounding pharmacy. That is not the case. There are many, many forms of FDA approved, quote unquote, bioidentical hormone therapy, including the transdermal, patch, estradiol, and micronized progesterone. Would you take into account, you know, uh, something like genetics or the estrogen metabolites? Like, would you look at things like that nowadays? Well, I would focus on women in early menopause within 10 years, the first uh, 10 years after uh, the final menstrual period. And um, I would focus on a lot of quality of life issues as well as um, the chronic disease outcomes, you know, the, the management of symptoms, as well as changes in biomarkers related to glucose tolerance and lipids and cardiometabolic health, as well as the, what we call hard clinical outcomes, um, such as rates of heart attack and stroke and, and a lot of attention to cognitive function as well when um, hormone therapy is used in the earlier years of menopause. So I, I think that it would be extremely helpful to have a trial of these newer formulations, you know, the uh, patch estradiol, micronized progesterone. It will take a long-term follow-up. It will take a very large trial. Consider that the two hormone therapy trials in the WHI had 27,000 participants. Um, so this trial would have to be maybe three times as large because there are far fewer clinical events. I mean, that's good news. There are far fewer heart attacks, strokes, blood clots, um, breast cancer, women who are in very early, in earlier menopause. So it requires a longer trial. Then the question comes up, like, how would such a trial be funded? Because it's enormously expensive. So that's number one. Number two, what is the likelihood that those particular formulations will even be in common use by the time a firm answer is obtained? You know, in 10 years, there may be completely new formulations. It may become obsolete. Just as some clinicians say, well, the WHI results using oral conjugated estrogen and, and using medroxy progesterone acetate MPA, that's now obsolete because I use patch estradiol and micronized progesterone for my, you know, I prescribe 
those formulations for my patients. Uh, there's also the risk that these treatments could be obsolete if there's a lot of progress made in terms of newer treatments um, that actually are safer or appear to be safer um, and are um, preferred by women. So th these are some of the reasons why these large trials that would be very long-term of newer formulations of hormone therapy, looking at clinical outcomes in younger women have not moved forward more um, expeditiously. So my last question before I let you go, because uh, I want to be respectful of your time. What would you say, so for the women who are listening today and saying, okay, thank you so much, Dr. Manson. I understand what you're saying. You know, I still, I, you know, what do I do from here? Where do I go from here? If I want to try hormone therapy, do, what do I ask my doctor? How do, like, how do I find the right practitioner? So if you have trouble finding a clinician who has an interest and expertise in talking with you and having these conversations and evaluating with you your symptoms, your preferences, going over with you the benefits and risks of the different treatment options, which include not only the hormonal treatments and, and the transdermal versus oral, all of that, but also some of the non-hormonal uh, options that are available. There's new medication working in the brain uh, that just came out. There's also the you know antidepressants, gabapentin uh, type uh, SSRIs, SNRIs, gabapentin type medications that many uh, women are using. If you cannot find a clinician to have these discussions with you and help you with decision-making, there are some options. One is to go to menopause.org, the website of the Menopause Society, and it has a section that says, find a menopause practitioner. You can put in your zip code and it will um, tell you which clinicians within five miles, 10 miles, have a certification, special expertise in menopause management. You can also, also uh, try calling women's health centers that are at your uh, nearby medical center. You can call the medical center and ask for referrals. Um, there, there are many approaches, but women should not accept that they can't find a clinician who can have these conversations with them because all women deserve to be able to discuss these issues with a healthcare provider, with a clinician. Um, so I would try these different approaches. And then, um, especially if you are having um, moderate to severe symptoms, if you're having bothersome symptoms, disrupted sleep, then there's even more need to have these discussions and get treatment because that's the main indication for treatment is women who have moderate to severe hot flashes, night sweats, uh, symptoms that interfere with quality of life, women really should seek out treatment and hormone therapy does seem to be most effective treatment available, though there are other treatments that are reasonably close in, in efficacy. Um, and then for the question, of, uh, if you have a strong family history of osteoporosis and fracture, do have this conversation with your healthcare provider, whether you would be a candidate for hormone therapy. And my general recommendation is don't initiate hormone therapy for the express purpose of trying to prevent heart attacks, strokes, cognitive decline, um, various 
forms of cancer. The in the absence of having any hot flashes, night sweats, or other menopausal symptoms, because generally the trials show that the the benefits do not outweigh the risks in that kind of setting. I'm going to add one more resource too. Is Marcella Hill has a a website called Wake Her Up, and she also has a list of practitioners where you can find out who are specialized in menopause as well. So I'll add that one as well. And we'll put links to both of them below. Dr. Manson, thank you. This was amazing. I really appreciate your time and for sharing your amazing information. And uh, I do want to have you back to talk about your incredible career, because I want to focus on how you break barriers for women in medicine. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrea. It's great to be here and I look forward to coming back. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Manson as much as I did. And I do want to add one more way to help manage your symptoms, which is supplements. So we've got nutrition, lifestyle, and supplements, which is what we talk about here at Morphus. And these are supplements that I take to help manage my hot flashes and my night sweats and other menopausal symptoms and that are effective and backed by science as well. So lots of options, which is, I think what is a great takeaway from today's interview is that you have so many different options. And I love that she focused on nutrition and lifestyle because it is so important, right? And you, you heard those stats that she talked about, which is incredible. So thank you, Dr. Manson, again, for being on the show. And for all of you for listening, if you enjoyed today's interview, please share it because the more you share shows you care. And please leave a review because not only do I, do I read all of your reviews, but also it helps to push our podcast out to more listeners. Thank you so much, as always, for spending time with us. And I'll see you at the next interview. 